I'm thankful to get to open the Word of God with you tonight, see how He meets us. Uh, we're going to be in the book of Isaiah. Sarah alluded to it. We're starting a new, new series this week. We're going to be in the book of Isaiah, so if you have a Bible or if you have your phone, you can go and open to that. Um, we'll be in Isaiah chapter 1, starting at verse 1. Once you get there, it's easy to find. Uh, we're, we're taking nine weeks. So the next nine weeks, we're going to be walking through the book of Isaiah. And if you're like, Brian, but Isaiah has 66 chapters. How are you going to do 66 chapters in nine weeks? We're not. Okay? We're not going to cover every bit of it. We're just hitting the highlights along the way because our, our intent here is not to cover every detail, but really just to give a nice overview for everybody and hopefully give... Um, some foundational thoughts and reflections upon this, this uh, book that was written so that each one of us, as we go in our own private time with the Lord and open His Word, we may have a better foundation with which to look at and have a clear understanding of what God's doing and who He is and what He's up to and all about and how that's revealed through the book of Isaiah. So my hope is not just that you show up on Thursdays and hear the nine chapters that we're going to be covering over the course of the 66, but also that you'd be jumping into this book yourself. And I guarantee there'll be things you'll be like, what? I don't get it. And that's okay. It's all right. But keep coming back to it and trust the Spirit of the Lord to reveal to you what he's, what he's revealing about himself through these words, through these scriptures. Amen? Amen. Amen. Woohoo! All right. So the book of Isaiah, there's so much good stuff in here. So much good stuff. And if you've never opened it, um, but you've been in church for a while, then you might know that within the book of Isaiah, um, there's a lot of prophecies, a lot of predictions about future events. And specifically, you probably know about that there's something about the Messiah, about Jesus, that is spoken about in there, in the book of Isaiah. And it was spoken seven centuries before Jesus came to the earth. And that stuff is remarkable, and it is meaningful, and we're going to talk about it. We're going to get into it. But we're coming to this book, not just to reflect on those prophecies that were fulfilled, but to see what God reveals about himself through this man, Isaiah, and, and through the message that God had to these people in this day, the day in which Isaiah is writing. If you don't know this by now, I just want to make it clear to all of you. The main character of the Bible is God. It's God. Everything that happens within it, as we go to it, we will see more of him. Every book in this Bible is an opportunity to know more of God, to learn more about ourselves, and to understand a little more about this whole dynamic between God and humanity and creation and all that's going on. And so I'm looking forward to see what God's going to do over these nine weeks, how he's going to reveal some things. I think just Sarah and I both, as we've been diving into this book of Isaiah and research, Sarah's a researcher, if you didn't know. Not formally. Not formally, but um, she... Uh, She's a learner. She, needs, she likes input. I'm a like, I'll wing it. And so together, we're a great team. Anyway, I'm thankful because as we've been diving into this, I could, I'll speak for you as well. You can speak for yourself next week. But we've been just so shaped already by the little bit we've learned and as we've taken a deep dive into this book. I've read it before. We went, we're both gone to seminary. We've, we've like, you know, navigated this stuff. But every time you come to the word of God, it is not going to return void. It's going to deliver something. And man, there is some stuff to be delivered tonight. I believe that. Before we get into chapter one, though, 
some context is really, really helpful. So, um, Julian, can you put that map up on the screen? Sweet, thanks. All right. Hopefully everybody can see it. If I'm in the way of it for you, you can look at the side screens. This is the nation of Israel. This is sort of how it was back in the day. This is kind of the ideal of it, where you've got the 12 tribes. You might be like, what's going on? Well, each one of these little colored sections is uh, one of the 12 tribes. It's the territory that they had. And each territory was named after one of the 12 sons of Jacob. And it's occupied by the people of that son's lineage. So you're like Judah, the guy's name was Judah, and then all the kin that came from him now are like, that's our homeland, that big green section. But together, all of these different tribes make up one nation, one nation. And originally, before they came to this land, they came up out of Egypt from, sl- from slavery, and God brought them into this land, and they had no human king. They had no ruler over them except God himself. They were united by ethnicity, of course, right? They all come from the same family. But, but much more importantly, much more significantly, they were united by their relationship to God and his commands. They were the chosen people of God. They didn't have a king to unite them. They had God to unite them and to hold tight of them and to lead them and guide them. And so they make their way into the land and they settle and it kind of looks like this. And things go all right. It goes pretty well. And when a need would arise, God would raise up a leader to rally the people and accomplish whatever it was he needed in that moment. Whatever was needed for the nation in that moment to get everybody together. And these people were called judges like Gideon, Deborah, Samson. Samson did okay, not so great. But he raised up specific people for a specific moment in time, for a specific action that was needed for everybody to rally around. And then they would all just return to following God. And this is what it looked like. And it went pretty well. But eventually the people asked for a king, right? Like they looked around at the nations around them. And kings are quite a picture of someone's glory, right? They got palaces, they have crowns, and they can raise up armies, and kings are something that reflect how wonderful we are, how big we are. Look how proud we are. Look at our king. And so the the people, in jealousy of the nations around them, they go to God and they say, Lord, give us a king. He's kind of reluctant, you know? He's teaching, I don't know if you know what you're asking for. But God eventually responds to them and gives them what they've asked for. He gives them a king, and it, and it goes well until it doesn't, and then it goes well again, and, and then it goes really well, right, with King David. King David is, is the, the pinnacle of the Israelite kingdom, and he's the pinnacle of their nation. Uh, throughout the rest of their history, they're always just trying to get back to, to what it was like when David was king. So you got David, then there's Solomon, and then it gets real bad. It gets real bad. And there's conflict and there's division in the kingdom. And we end up with two separate kingdoms. There's one people, but two kingdoms. And this is so important for as we read Isaiah, this is the world in which Isaiah is speaking. One people, two kingdoms. In the north, there's the ten tribes. All those kind of really colorful ones at the top. Those are the northern tribes, and they all become the northern kingdom, but they retain the name Israel. And so if you're ever reading and you get really confused, where you're like, Israel, but then what's this other? It 
it's helpful to know, are, are you reading from a prophet who's writing during the time of the divided kingdom? Because if he's talking about Israel, he's talking about the northern kingdom, the king at the top. And the kings in the north over the centuries, they're all sorts of wicked. <laughs> they're not great. Things are real messy politically. And there's no like clear lineage from like, you know, normally it's like, I am King Brian, and my son Isaac shall be king next. And everybody goes, yay, Isaac. And then Isaac's son will be the next one. It didn't work like that in the north. It was rough. Things were wild because the kings were wicked. And God sends prophets to them to correct them and call them to repentance, but it really, it really doesn't really work. Then there's the southern kingdom. And it's made of Benjamin and Judah. So Benjamin, the little orange one in the middle, right above Jerusalem, or Jerusalem actually is just on the border. It's just inside Benjamin. And then you've got Judah, the big green one. And in case you were wondering, you're like, what's the deal? Why did Judah get all that land? He was the eldest, so it kind of works that way. So Judah and Benjamin, they end up becoming the southern kingdom. And this kingdom is referred to as Judah. Its capital is Jerusalem. And the kings on this throne are from the line of David. They are the lineage of promise through whom the Messiah, Jesus, would come. And they go from good to kind of all right to really bad and kind of okay again. And it just kind of goes back and forth as time goes on. They're kind of all over the place, but the trend is mostly bad. It's just mostly bad. And so this is who Isaiah is sent to, the southern kingdom of Judah. He's sent to them. And this is the one people with two kingdoms a divided people whose leaders and people are kind of a shambles of what God intended, what he chose them to be. Uh, maybe you know this, maybe you don't, but God went to their forefather Abraham and he said, I will bless you and you will be a blessing and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. That's what God intended for this people to become, a blessed people through whom blessings overflow into the world around them. Abraham's descendants were definitely not living it out in these moments. And this sets the stage for verse 1. So, verse 1. The vision concerning Judah and Jerusalem that Isaiah, son of Amos, saw during the reigns of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. As we go along, uh, throughout tonight, I, I want to point out what God used the prophets for. Isaiah is a prophet, and I think it's really helpful if we understand kind of what this office, this ministry of prophet is, and we'll learn it as we go through chapter one. And this verse is a, a great place to reflect upon this. And then the first point I want to draw out is that first of all, and primarily, a prophet is a mouthpiece for God to his people. He spoke God's message. It was God's message that he spoke, not his own. And he doesn't bring his own message. He shares with the people God's message. And Isaiah is sharing the visions God gave him concerning Judah and Jerusalem. And that's kind of the second point here. Nothing is general about a prophet's pronouncements. Nothing's general. Although each prophet states some timeless general principles, the prophet's chief duty was to deal with his own people during his day. And all the writings include rebukes because of bad conditions that existed at the time the prophecies were given. Like during the reign of these kings that were up there, right? We've got Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Like 
This is a specific point in time that he's speaking to a specific people. It's defined. There's nothing general about the prophet's message. The marks were always very pointed and meant for a particular people. And next point I want to draw out here for all of us as we go in is predictive declarations are a feature, not the focus. When we're thinking about prophecy, I think we so often can just draw to like the predictions. That that's all they're doing. They're just predicting, predicting, predicting. But, but the predictions uh, are, are a feature, not, a, not the focus. The prophets spoke of current events, but also of future events. And they regularly speak of judgment that would come to pass because of the people's sin, but also because of the plans um, but also because of the plans of God to, for redemption and renewal. So, so they spoke of future events, yes, of judgment and of God's renewal. So it's good and bad things of, hey, this is what's coming. And those things were future-oriented. Those were predictive. But all of it, including those predictive things and the not-so-predictive things, all of it in the moment was meant to turn the hearts of those people back to God. It's about repentance and humility before God. The predictive things function to lay the groundwork for what God had planned and to validate the message of the one who spoke them to the generations that followed. But in the moment, those predictive declarations were meant to turn the hearts of the people back to God. That's the purpose. That's what's meant to be accomplished. And the last thing I want to point out is that Isaiah is recorded over a lifetime. It's recorded over a lifetime. Four kings, like that's a lot. The guy lived to be 120. It's a lot of lifetime. It's not written in one sitting, but over the course of decades. And really, I think of it like Isaiah, this old man, you know, he's got like his moleskin journal or whatever, and his satchel going throughout life, just walking around. And anytime God has like a vision or something that he calls him to do or something he wants him to say, Isaiah pulls out that journal and he takes notes so he can be clear about what it is God is calling him to. And over the course of his life, he continues to write. He continues to write. God speaks. He pulls it out. He writes. Decades later, God speaks. He pulls it out. He writes. And eventually, that's what we have here in the book of Isaiah is a lifetime's worth of visions and words. And so that's so important for us to recognize because if you're reading through the book of Isaiah, you might be reading in one place where Uzziah is the king. And things are actually going pretty well. And so the things that God is saying at this time and what's going on is in the context of this one king at this one time with these certain circumstances. But then, you know, two chapters later, it might be six years later, two decades later, and there's a different circumstance. There's different armies attacking. There's different people in power. There's all different dynamics. And so it's helpful to recognize that what we're reading isn't something that was written in one sitting, but is written over a lifetime. So we need to be aware. What are the changing circumstances? What are the things that are said? These little notes, like this first verse that just says, in the day of. As we go about, you'll see that there's these little indicators that, hey, this is a different time and space. When we get to chapter 6 next week, where Sarah's going to preach, the very first opening of it is, is that in the year King Uzziah died. Well, there's an indicator to us. Something significant has changed. The dynamics are shifting here. And so we need to be aware of that as we read so that we can actually understand what's going on. You savvy? savvy. Great. I'll pick different words next time, I guess. <laughs> All right. Let's keep going. 
Verse 2. Oh, man, guys, this stuff is rich. Slap. Yeah, thanks. You know, it does, this slaps. You're going to get slapped tonight, straight up. Like, actually, literally, like, these words are going to slap your heart around. Okay. Ready? Verse 2. We're all in this together. Hear me, you heavens, listen, earth, for the Lord has spoken. That's a good opening. I reared children and brought them up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows his master, the donkey, its owner's owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. I'm going to keep reading, but first I just want to point out, notice the quotation marks. This actually matters, and it's helpful as we go through reading so you can understand what's going on. It's the end of a quotation. And so at the end of that quotation, now we're going to get some of Isaiah riffing on what God is speaking about in this quotation. And let me just say, so that we all understand that it's not like in this moment there's, we're no longer getting the word of God or that's no longer something that's faithful to the message of God. God spoke clearly to the prophets. Isaiah is just riffing on it and he's pulling on it, but it's, it's consistent with the message God intended. And we know this, we know this pretty clearly because the prophets had no leeway to bring a different message or to do something other than what God intended. And this is displayed clearly In the two prophets who tried to do something other than what God intended, Jonah and Balm, and God literally turned all of creation upon them until they actually went and did what he wanted. There's no escape. God will make sure his message is is declared clearly. And, And the prophets, man, I'm thankful I'm not a prophet. God made sure it came across. They lived a hard life, but it was a worthwhile life to be faithful to what God said. And so we can be sure that if this was not what God intended, he would have turned Isaiah right around and he would have made it clear. This is not my message, Isaiah. So we continue and we still get the same message of God through Isaiah as he kind of riffs on what God has shown him in these visions. Verse four, woe to the sinful nation, a people whose guilt is great, a brood of evildoers, children given to corruption. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? Why do you persist in rebellion? Your whole head is injured, your whole heart afflicted. From the sole of your foot to the top of your head, there is no soundness. Only wounds and welts and open sores, not cleansed or bandaged or soothed with olive oil. Things aren't going well. That's pretty clear. Hopefully you picked up on that, right? This brings us to a very significant point about the prophets. A prophet was never sent while the nation was walking in obedience to God. Talk about a tough job. A prophet was never sent while a nation was walking in obedience to God. Like, it should be obvious from these first six verses. Isaiah was not written to a people who were doing great, but to a people who had become hardened and wayward, whose hearts were far from the God they claimed to serve. And it's pretty clear right here in these verses. I mean, look at verse 3. The ox knows its master, the donkey its owner's manager, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. Continues on. They have forsaken the Lord. They have spurned the Holy One of Israel and turned their backs on Him. Why should you be beaten anymore? If you're compared to a donkey, and the donkey is praised for being more self-aware than you. 
things are not well. Right? That's one of the fun things about the prophets is, man, do they get sarcastic and sassy. It's great. So the people, they're walking a path of destruction, right? They're being beaten and bloodied along the way on this path, and yet they continue on as if all is well, ignoring God's guidance, ignoring his correction, and they ignorantly, they stubbornly are marching into greater and greater miseries. Even donkey and oxen don't do that. They at least respond to the crack of the whip and are guided away from danger. They, these people are like in a pit and they're unable to see God, much less themselves, much less be able to reveal him to others, which is God's whole purpose, his desire for them. They are so numb to the consequences of their wickedness, they don't sense that anything is wrong. So accustomed to the abuse, the beatings incurred because of their own folly that they think this is what prosperity looks like. I think of Romans one twenty one, different circumstances, definitely, same outcome. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Like, unfortunately, I, I speak for myself, probably for all of us. The foolishness, the ignorance, the self-deception, the numbness that plagues these people, I think is more familiar to myself than I'd like to say. Like so many of us do exactly what the Israelites are doing. We are ignorant of what good looks like. And we're so stubborn in our wicked ways. Like we're so accustomed to gossip that we don't have an appetite for guiding, guarding our heart from malicious thoughts about others. We're so accustomed to justification through comparison that we dismiss accountability and dependence upon God's grace and mercy. We're so rooted in transactional relationship dynamics that faithfulness is a mystery to us. And then someone comes along and confronts us, like personally confronts us, personally confronts us that there's a better way. And I'm like, I don't want to hear it because what I've got is all I know and I don't want to give it up. God is so merciful to endure our faults and he definitely endures their faults. He's so merciful and patient with them. Continues in verses seven, eight, and nine. And here we get more reflection upon the poor state of affairs and how barren the land and the people are. And in verse 9 comes this reflection. Unless the Lord Almighty had left us some survivors, like if not for God's mercy, we would have become like Sodom. We would have been like Gomorrah. And these are two cities that would have been very well known to these people. These cities were utterly destroyed, wiped from the face of the earth, and every inhabitant within them destroyed because of their wickedness. They were so wicked, they were wiped from the earth. And then in verse 10, God says this, Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. He's calling them Sodom and Gomorrah. Like, this is sass. It's jest, but it's powerful. 
He's like, look, people. In this short, short way of saying, he's like, look, you have been treated like Sodom and Gomorrah. You have not been treated, sorry. You have not been treated like Sodom and Gomorrah. The way they were treated for their wickedness. You were not treated like that. But don't get all prideful about that. You're no better than they were. You're just like them. The takeaway should be that we are reaping a portion of what we have been sowing and we should have reaped so much more destruction so much sooner had it not been for God's mercy. I might round out the sassiness here and just say it like this. What a remarkable thing that he has been merciful given the way you guys are treating him. You ever say that to like a girlfriend or... That's weird coming from me. I was thinking of like a girl saying it to a girlfriend about like her boyfriend. You know what I mean? Anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Just move on. Yeah. Okay. This is God speaking, guys. <laughs> Not me. This is God speaking to these people, and he's calling them out hardcore. And we'd be foolish to think we're better than them that we're above God's grace. That's what they were thinking. We're not above it either. We're dependent upon it entirely. Okay, verse 11. This is a long section. Hang with me and it's good. The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough of burnt offerings, of rams and the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. And when you come to appear before me, who has asked you of this, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. New moons, Sabbaths, convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Your new moon feasts and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands in prayer, I hide my eyes from you. Even when you offer many prayers, I'm not listening. Your hands are full of blood. Wash. Make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless, plead the case of the widow. Like if you've been a Christian in the church for a long time, this ought to make you, make you sit up real straight. As Sarah said before, God doesn't do fake. He doesn't do fake. Verse 13, right? Stop bringing meaningless offerings. 14, I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. Like offerings and sacrifices and assemblies are something God had coordinated with the people that they would do it. He called them into it and yet he loathes it when they do it. Not because God made a bad plan, but because the purpose of those sacrifices and festivals was to draw the hearts of the people back to God. For them to be aligned with him and to receive his mercy and grace. Because these are imperfect people. And yet God chose to love them despite their faithlessness and wickedness. 
And yet here they are, these things that are supposed to draw them into a recognition of that reality. The immense love of God that has chosen them despite their faithlessness, despite their brokenness. And they've turned these things upside down. They've hardened their hearts to that fact. These things that were designed to realign a person's heart in humility, gratitude, and relationship with God had become a means of pride, entitlement, faithlessness, and self-righteousness. I think of Micah 6.8, who Micah is a contemporary of Isaiah. And God says through him, he says this, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? To act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. These people that Isaiah is talking to had long forsaken these three things, and yet boastfully stood before God, doing the sacrifices, having the festivals, and going like, aren't I awesome? Look at the thing I did. You're welcome, God. You bet. It's for you, buddy. Oh, man. There's no humility in any of, any of these things. None of it. Especially when the rest of their lives are so full of injustice and malice and idolatry, and yet they come before him going, I am the Lord's, look what I've done for him. You know, and they go around to all the people like, we are a reflection of God. And yet their lives are full of all this junk God surely is just mourning. It's like all along, he's just lamenting how ugly their hearts have become. How far they have wandered from what it is those sacrifices, those rituals were meant for, and the horrifying representation these people were of the Lord God, creator of the universe, to the nations around them. This brings us to our point here. God cares deeply about transformed hearts. He cares deeply about transformed hearts. The major prophets vividly teach us that God is deeply concerned with moral integrity and justice in our daily lives. They teach us that God values the purity of our hearts and the behavior that overflows from it. Behavior matters. Behavior matters because behavior has real-world consequences. So if we have a corrupt heart, which manifests corrupt behavior then God cares deeply about transforming our hearts so that we can be a part of the mending of this world with our behavior and dial back how much we contribute to its destruction and our own with our behavior. Through the prophets like Isaiah, God is continually calling people to one thing, repentance. Turn from these wicked ways, walk in purity of heart. Walk in purity of heart. Like next week, Sarah's going to get more into this as we look at chapter six. But when the pure in heart see that there is something crooked within them, a behavior that's contrary to God, a way of thinking, a desire that is contrary to God, what do they do? They repent. They ask forgiveness. They seek transformation. And of course, that all starts, that all starts with being willing to recognize that something within you is crooked. See here at the end of this section, God is calling them to repentance, verses 16 and 17. He's calling them to return to his ways and be received. Like God is so patient. 
He's so patient and merciful. At this point in time, when Isaiah is speaking, this corruption and idolatry has been going rampant for two centuries since Solomon. And God has been sending prophets. He's been calling them, warning them, doing everything he can to get their attention and say, turn from this, turn from this, turn from this for centuries. That's multiple generations. Think about that. God is patient. And yet, these people so ignorant of their wayward hearts, they never thought to repent. But they saw themselves as justified, as holier than thou, because they did the proper religious practices. You and I are not holier than anyone. It is only by the grace of God as provided through the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that we've got any shot at any good, at any righteousness, at any holiness, at any association with God himself. And that same grace is extended to everyone, every single person. We're not holier than anyone. Just like them, we are fully dependent upon his grace. Surrendered before him saying, Lord, I can't, but you can. Please help. The moment any one of us slips into thinking, I'm better than that person because I read my Bible, I pray, I go to church, I'm on board with this cause or that cause. <sighs> Isaiah is speaking to you. And it's scary. Repent. Don't harden your hearts. Be wiser than a donkey, okay? We've all got to learn to lean on God and to guard our hearts in this sort of stuff, to purify our hearts, to ask him to do it, and then let him do it. Let him purify us. We all need the grace of God, a grace that is referenced in our next verses. Let's look at verse 18. Come now, let us settle the matter, says the Lord. He's like, let me tell you what I'm going to do. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. He's like, look, I'm going to wash you. I'm going to wash you. I'm going to clean you up. And of course, from our historical perspective, we know that this, of course, uh, is completed. Uh, the fullness of this promise to wash us white as snow is completed in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus and then the sending of the Holy Spirit. There will be forgiveness, complete forgiveness. There will be purity, complete purity. The impossible will be, will be accomplished on each of our behalves. And on the behalf of these people, though they lived centuries before Christ, God will do it, and he did. He said he would do this, and he did. Continues in verse 19. If you are willing and obedient, you will eat the good things of the land. But if you resist and rebel, you will be devoured by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's like, I'm going to clean you up. But even then, after I've cleaned you, then what? Then what? And he's saying this to these people in this day. Then what? I'm still here with you. 
You have not been taken into captivity yet. You have not yet been destroyed. I am still here with you. My grace is here with you. I am willing to receive you. Okay, I've told you that. Now what? How are you going to respond? If you're willing and obedient, it will go well with you. If you resist and rebel, it will not go well with you. Like, this is not God being withholding. This is reality. It's just the reality. Like, the natural consequences of behavior that overflows from a wicked and rebellious heart is that things don't go well. Things don't go well. We've all experienced that. Even if you're like, well, I'm pretty good. You know someone who's not, and you've seen the destruction in their life. Or maybe you've experienced it. That the overflow of their heart is a wellspring of, of death, not life. And all of us are truly in that place. All of us have sinned. All of us have hurt others. All of us have thought poorly of others, pridefully of ourselves, justified ourselves through comparison. So many, so many other things. Lied, deceived, stolen. We've wounded people. We're all in this place where we need the Lord. What God is saying here to these people, verse 19 here, what he's saying, this is a warning, not a threat. It's a warning, not a threat. You know, when reading through the Old Testament, so much of it seems to be about material prosperity. If if you've gone through it, it seems like material prosperity is like a significant thing, right? He talks about the land of milk and honey, the abundant crops, the prosperous vineyards, victory and conflict, provision, sustenance, children, livestock, like prosperity things. And we're going to see that as we go through the book of Isaiah. But this, these are symptoms, not, not the sickness. These are symptoms of lives, of how they're walking, not the sickness. One of the things the prophets help us to clarify is this. God's intent is not to prosper them materially, but to purify them unto prosperity, like true prosperity. And if you're like, come on, Brian, that's just semantics. But it really matters. It really, really matters. It's like give a man to fish and you feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and he has food his whole life, right? We all know that simple proverb, right? But it's meaningful and God, he's on board with it. There's truth to that. God can give Israel or you power and money and that spouse you've been lusting over. And children and superficial honor, like fame. He can give you worldly prosperity. And to what end? Your own destruction? Like like an insurmountable pain that comes from brokenness and broken relationships that will all inevitably happen. It's just leaving you in internal dissonance and conflict and anxiety and being wrecked with hopelessness and the cannibalistic nature of pride, self-sufficiency. Why would God leave us to that? God wants so much better for us than that. God wants better, and he wants better for Israel at this time as well. He wants to purify them. For from that purity, that transformed heart, will be a wellspring of prosperity that no earthly circumstance can undermine. No experience of collateral damage that will be sustained while a part of this broken world can tarnish the prosperity of the pure in heart. You will truly prosper. And not like give God $10, he'll give you 110 
Like, no, that's not what I'm talking about. We spent the last four weeks talking about friendship and relationships and that that's at the core of life and that's what truly matters. What true prosperity is built on is that, that your relationship to God and your relationships to others. And this is primarily what God desires for us, what our hearts truly long for is this relational prosperity with God and with others, being made right with him, experiencing the joy of his face shining upon us. But I also got to make clear, financial prosperity, social prosperity, honor, a husband or wife that you actually really like, many of these things will naturally flow from a life lived in integrity and humility, reverence for God, and in relationship with Him. Those earthly things naturally flow in the wake of a life well-lived. That's what the Proverbs are all about. Read them. It's worthwhile. Implement what's in there. It's worthwhile. But it's not a guarantee. None of the Proverbs are promises. They're wise sayings. It's not a guarantee. And that's where the prosperity gospel people get it all wrong. <laughs> Earthly wealth, success, they're not guaranteed. And it's also not the goal. But true prosperity, the sort that makes life worth living, this is what overflows from a purified heart. And when our hearts are purified, when we're made right with God, when we position ourselves to continually be saying, Lord, I need you and I want you, and I'm willing to literally deconstruct the rest of my life so you can reconstruct it in the way I ought to live, the way I ought to think, the way I ought to operate. As we continue to do that, and that purity of heart where we're bringing ourselves, where we're actually bringing the reality of what's going on internally and the reality of our external. It's just not being fake with God. It's confronting reality in every sphere and bringing it before him saying, hey, this is, this is what's going on. Here's where I'm at. Letting him tell you, hey, this is what's going on, man. This is where you're at. When we do that, there will be less destruction in your life and more mending, more forgiving, more redeeming, more hope, more joy, more adventure, more love, more of the things that truly matter. And some of those things, not guaranteed, but often will lead to all the other things. But we don't pursue the other things. They're kind of like the cherry on top. They're not the cake or the ice cream sundae, right? God's intent is to purify them and us unto prosperity, and it begins with purification. Okay, verse 24 through 28. The Lord, the Lord Almighty, the mighty one of Israel declares, ah, <laughs> that's funny. Can you imagine God just being like, ah, <laughs> apparently he did. I will vent my wrath on my foes and avenge myself on my enemies. I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. I will restore your leaders as the days of old and your, rule, your rulers as at the beginning. Afterward, you will be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. Zion will be delivered with justice, her penitent ones with righteousness. But rebels and sinners will both be broken, and those who forsake the Lord will perish. I got two things to talk about on this band, if you guys want to make your way up. And the first, uh, there's, there's a quote from Thomas Akempis. 
end, in verse 27, it says, The penitent will be delivered with righteousness. I think of Matthew 5, 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Penitent means repentant. It means contrite. It means remorseful. Thomas Akempis writes, I would rather feel compunction than know its definition. I read that and looked up the definition of compunction because I didn't know. But it means repentant, contrite, remorseful, penitent. I'd rather feel that than know its definition. To actually be it is so much more important than understanding it or explaining it. He goes on, he says, If you knew the whole Bible and the sayings of all the, pro- of all the philosophers, what would it profit you without the love and grace of God? Vanity of all vanities, all is vanity except loving God and serving him alone. Amen to that. Second point is this. Look at verse 25. He says, I will turn my hand against you. I will thoroughly purge away your dross and remove all your impurities. First part of verse 26. I will restore you as in the days of old. The first line of 25 and the first line of 26. I will turn my hand against you. Verse 26. I will restore you as in the days of old. These thoughts are connected. They're connected. They are the same thought. He talks about purging away dross, removing impurities. In preparing for this, Sarah and I read many things, traded things back and forth. Some of the things were used words I didn't understand that she gave me, and I thought, I'll move on. (laughs) Only a few, only a couple places. Just joking. I'm really just, anyway, okay. Anyway, one of the things Sarah and I came across as we collaborated is, is this reflection upon this reality of purification, of what a, a refiner of fine metals might do. See, what they'll do is they've got this thing, and, and uh, back in the day, you, you, you light a really big fire, you get the furnace going, and you get all this like gold ore, and you put it in there, and it heats it up, and it starts to liquefy, and all the junk floats to the top. And you start scraping it off and throwing it off to the side. That junk's called dross. Those impurities, that junk, dross, in case you didn't know. Well, of course, with gold, you can picture it. I'm sure you can picture it. I mean, think of like Fellowship of the Ring or, no, no, what's the one? The Hobbit. Yeah. You know what I'm talking about? Anyway, okay. In the dwarves' cave, they got all this like liquefied gold. Okay, if you think of... If you think of it, think of gold, liquefied gold. What do you picture? Something beautifully shiny, reflective, right? Well, all these impurities, all this dross are quite dull. And so as the refiner is going, he's dragging it off and throwing it aside, dragging it off and throwing it aside, pulling out all this dullness. And the way he tests and can attest to how pure the gold is, what's left in there, is by how clear his reflection is in what he's doing. He looks to see how clear the reflection is. And the more he pulls off, the clearer his reflection gets. The more he sees his own face within what is being purified. Is that not what God wants for us? That we may clearly reflect him to the world around us. That we may clearly reflect him to one another. God wants to purify us. To bring about his own image within us in a way that literally changes the world. 
and changes each and every one of our hearts. He will purify and refine his people that they may accurately reflect him. Father God, we ask that you would do the same for us. Refine us, Lord. Have your way. We are willing. In Jesus' name, amen.